let's head out of Moscow for a change, specifically to the Komi Republic, high north land of snow and ice, indigenous peoples, decaying ghosts of gulag camps, and more civil society than one might expect. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. One of the inevitable but still problematic pathologies of studying Russia is the degree to which very much we focus on Moscow, with maybe a little side order of St. Petersburg. Except when there's some kind of local upsets, such as what's currently going on in Bashkortostan, in which actually there tends to be more than anything else a surprise that something could be happening out there in the provinces. To a large degree, this is still a Moscow-centric field. And therefore, actually, it's worth noting particular credit for outlets like Bear Market Brief, well worth following, that do very specifically also try and make sure that they look properly and systematically at the regions. But anyway, what I thought I'd do today is, particularly as an an opportunity to slightly uh, buck that trend, is to take the opportunity of a particular report on, the title is Grassroots Propaganda and Repression in Russia's Komi Republic, and use that to, to sort of spin out and talk more briefly about what's going on in the Komi Republic and what it may say more broadly about you know, other processes currently at work. Now, this report in question comes from the Association Destination Est, Association Dest, which, I'll be honest, I don't know. Somehow, clearly, I got on their mailing list, but I have absolutely no wider connection with them. And to be honest, I know very little about them, not least because if you go to their website, you end up with a very minimalist page that directs you either to a what looks pretty dormant Facebook account or a Tumblr account. And I don't, I really don't need yet another sort of micro-blogging, social media-ish type site, so I, I'm not on Tumblr. And it describes itself as a Franco-Russian do-slash-think-tank intent on fostering dialogue and cooperation between Russian civil society and European decision-makers and opinion-formers. Now, beyond a natural knee-jerk prejudice against anyone who uses that whole we're not a think-tank, we're a do-tank type formulation, might have been clever the first time someone came up with it, but now it just basically makes my lip curl in contempt. But that's just me. I'm a naturally intolerant person. But anyway, this is part of a project called Bridges Between the EU and Russia 2. The report came out at the end of last year, but as I said, I only got to it uh, very recently. And I mean, it is it is interesting because although, as I said, I, I can't give sort of bona fides to it, you know, it is properly, you know, referenced and such like. And it very much tries to dig into some of the processes that are taking place in what is, after all, a particularly, I think it's fair to say, not just geographically quite distant, but also politically quite marginalised location. So, as I said, it looks at the Komi Republic. Now, 
I'm sure most of my listeners have all the facts and f- features of the Comey Republic at their fingertips, but just in case, there's a few who don't. It's, uh, as I said, a, a high north republic. It's got a population of 720,000. It's about the same size as Sweden, though you know it's not even got one-tenth of the population thereof. Frankly, one of the most uh, marked things about it is precisely its key role in the Gulag labor camp system in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It's the site of particular hellholes, and even by the standards of Gulags, places like the, the, the Vorkuta camp, Vorkutlag, which was also a site of a series of uprisings, including a particularly striking one in 1953 was eventually closed in 62. But the point is, um, Comey, frankly, is scattered with with these former sites, places like Pechora and such like. So not only does that mean it has a deep and bloody history and, frankly, is built on the bones of Zex, of the, the convicts in the Gulag, Gulag camps, but also, you know, a lot of the, the uh, Gulag labourers, essentially, when they came out, they didn't really have anywhere to go or there are many places they weren't allowed to go. So actually, you have a disproportionate number of people in, in the Comey Republic who actually are descended from from Zex. The irony is it's still described as one of the seven wonders of Russia. I, I, I confess I've never been, and I, I suspect I won't be there for quite some time. Um, but it's particularly known for, as I say, the sort of in, indigenous peoples and also frankly, some very striking and, and beautiful landscaping. I mean, I know this is a bit of a sidebar or whatever, but I, I, I would wish one day to be able to see what's called the Manpupu Nyor, um, ses, known as the Seven Strong Men, Seven Great Stone Pillars. Um, anyway, but that's that's a little, little sideline. So overall, it's the kind of region whose economy largely depends on oil, gas, coal and timber. In other words, big, ugly extraction industries, it's relatively poor. It's certainly relatively politically marginalised. Its its capital, Siktivkar, um, is not the sort of place that, that officials would would seek to go on the whole if, if if they can avoid it. But nonetheless, there we go. Three quarter, almost three quarters of a million people. What's going on there? Now, this this report, first of all, sort of I think quite rightly talks about freedom of speech being on life support. Now, it makes it the point, it very much follows up on the, the, the writings of the sociologist Victor Wachstein, who says that basically Russia's social atomization is a byproduct of widespread poverty. And, and certainly in, in Comey Republic, poverty is greater than national average. There's 14% of people living below the poverty line. And this sort of contributes to depoliticization. Now, look, I would suggest that it's a little bit more complex than that. I don't think one can draw direct sort of correlations between poverty and, and atomization. It's certainly a significant factor. But I think also it both is a product of and a contributing factor towards depoliticization. In other words, people thinking that politics doesn't matter. There was a survey carried out by the Levada Centre in June 2023, cited in the report, that says that overall only 23% of Russians feel any responsibility for what's happening in their country. Now, given that this is in the midst of a time of war, one could say that it just simply they, they, they don't want to have their hands in blood. But nonetheless, I think it just speaks more generally to the fact that basically if you feel that you can have no meaningful impact on the political order, 
and only 17% of those surveyed actually think that they have the power to, to frankly challenge the country at all, you know, what's going on in the country at all. Well, then, of course, why, sh- why should you, you feel the blame? And that is, on the one hand, a very sad statistic, but it also, I think, helps explain some of the civil society patterns which are going to emerge uh, as we go through this podcast, in the sense that it is a natural human instinct to try and change your environment. You know, go, go back to the cavemen. You know, then, you know, you're cold, you try and light a fire. You're hungry, you go out and hunt something. You know, all of these really are, are simple ways in which actually you still feel that e- even if you can't change things on the grand scale, you can't change the weather, but at least you can light a fire. You look to things that you can influence. If you absolutely feel that national politics is locked up, and frankly, you are essentially right, well, yes, you can succumb to just simply despair. We can look at, you know, think of late Brezhnevism and so forth, that period in which actually you have suicide rates and alcoholism rates skyrocketing, very much, I think, as a, as a symptom of that. But also, so long as there is still the scope, you can turn to forms of civil society, ways in which you can, if you can't change national politics, that maybe you can change things on a small local level, or maybe you can still protest, you can still raise your voice even if you don't ultimately think that the state will will listen to that so this is why you know freedom of speech is important and very much you know, the report says the obvious things about how you know new laws have made anti-war sentiments expressing anti-war seg- sentiments essentially illegal very much calls this military censorship in all but name and you know raises the point that There are serious concerns about the scope for civil society because, you know, even lawyers who who work for it are finding that they're what they call the witnessing the destruction of the foundations of the legal system. And I think, again, this this is important because what we're seeing is not necessarily a top-level imposition of martial law over the country or anything like that. But in many ways, we're seeing a kind of creeping creation of those kind of structures by a variety of different measures. And in some ways... I would personally draw a parallel to what happened in late Tsarism, in which you actually ended up with a majority of the country under the so-called extraordinary guard or reinforced guard provisions. So in other words, the country was not in martial law, but there were so many local impositions of martial law style regimes that, you know, to, to all intents and purposes, that's what was happening in Russia. So there is that sense that, you know, bit by bit, all the various measures being brought in, often as emergency measures, to respond to the the crisis in national morale, which I think it is fair to call it that, around the war, are kind of creating a, a creeping martial law overall structure. But in particular, it cites the fact that the human rights group Avtozak Avtozak being, for those who know it, it's basically um, what in British parlance would be a, a Black Mariah. In other words, the sort of police vans used for, for picking up uh, prisoners. Anyway, looked at the period between the 4th of March 2022 and 15th of February 2023. And in that period found that there had been 84 administrative and criminal cases over discrediting of the army within the Komi Republic. And for comparison, in that same period... There were 159 in St. Petersburg. Well, okay. 
let's just dig into those those figures that the report has brought out. So 84 cases in Komi Republic, 159 in St. Petersburg. To put it another way, there were 84 in a region with a population of 720,000, and 155 in a region with a population of 5.5 million. Now, at that rate, one would expect only 20 in Komi, not 84. Now, why is this? Well, obviously, don't know is the first honest answer. It could just simply be that the forces of repression within the Komi Republic are that much more vigilant, that much more hawkish. It could even be that, frankly, if you are, let's say, an FSB officer in the Komi Republic, you are desperate to get out. And therefore, you might think that uh, demonstrating particular vigour in prosecuting these crimes is a way to get the attention of someone and maybe get a posting to somewhere a little, a little bit more, more temperate. So that is absolutely one of the possibilities, and it is a process, a, a trend that we've seen in other cases. But it also maybe tells us that, in fact, there is more protest potential in the provinces than perhaps we had assumed. Because here is a problem. I think that, you know, academics and journalists alike, it's not only that they tend to be more likely to do their work in Moscow and to know people in Moscow, but also they're more likely to know the Moscow and St. Petersburg and, and maybe a few other main cities, cosmopolitan middle class. And it has to be said that the cosmopolitan middle class of, of, the, of Russia's main cities does also tend to be incredibly, in my opinion, snobbish towards the provinces. There is that sense that basically, you know, they are the, the shining beacon of liberalism and activism in the sort of dark wilderlands of, of rural and provincial Russia. And bit by bit, that might well inform the opinions of, of journalists and, and academics. So it, you know, this could actually say something more broadly about metropolitan middle-class prejudices within Russia and how that gets relayed into you know, Western parlance. Now, okay, so what? What? What is the sort of, shall I say, importance of the war in this context? Well, it's hard not to assume that there may well be some kind of correlation between activism against the war and casualties from the war. You know, after all, it's worth noting, what is the current regional big story in Russia? It is protests in Bashkortostan. And although the protests are not about the war, they're about totally separate issues, or notionally separate issues, Bashkortostan is also one of the regions of Russia from which a disproportionate people rec were recruited into the military before the war, simply because it seemed like a good way out of provincial poverty. And then they found themselves mobilized as reservists and sent back into the fighting and taking casualties. And generally, I think this is this is something that we're going to have to watch because, again, public protest does not often follow very, very straight lines. You often get discontent rising because of factor A that ends up being manifest through protests around factor B. And, well, what's happening in the Komi Republic? Well, the Barents Observer reported that, uh, according to the Pesets uh, Telegram Group, as of the 16th of January 2024, so as of quite recently, 
400 men from the Komi Republic had fallen in the Ukraine war. 400, okay, doesn't sound very much, but remember, you know, each one of these casualties is like a, a drop of ink in the water of society. In the sense of, it, it, it spreads. It's not just that person's family who suffer and know about it. It's their friends and their neighbours. It's the people who, you know, you know are they, would have normally been their work colleagues or whatever. They may mourn the individual, they may not, but they are certainly aware of, of that loss at a time when the state is def desperately trying to actually keep a lid on losses. For a comparison, let's take another northern region, Murmansk region. Population 660,000, so a little bit smaller than the Komi Republic. But in that same period, apparently it has suffered 284 losses. Now again, if, if it was actually going to be at the same ratio of losses as Komi, it would have been 367. So what we do see is, that again, uh, an impoverished region such as the Komi Republic, one in which I think it's more coincidentally than anything else, but also has a, a distinct series of non-Russian local ethnic populations, clearly ended up with more people than one would expect joining the military before the war, and that means more people coming home in body bags during the war. This is, as I say, I don't think entirely coincidental. I mean, who knows? You have to take a lot of this supposition of mine with, with, with considerable caution. But it, but it definitely seems to, there seems to be, and again, who knows, causation, correlation, they're not necessarily the same. Um, but there seems to be a certain kind of connection between a willingness to protest the war and an awareness of the casualties of the war and a sense that they themselves have suffered disproportionately. And that's really important, that sense of disproportionate suffering. Because the point is, that can easily emerge even when it doesn't happen. When I did my doctorate on the impact of the Soviet war in Afghanistan, pretty much every ethnicity within the Soviet Union was convinced that they had suffered disproportionately, even though actually when one looks at the breakdown of casualty data, they generally hadn't. So even when actually the war is fairly evenly spread, it's very easy for it to become an idiom of either nationalism or, or localism. People feel that we are suffering more than is our share. When it actually is something that you are suffering more from, then of course that's going to happen all the more importantly. And again, if we look at Afghanistan as a comparator, we're back to this issue of cause A generating protest for cause B. In this case, again, we, we could expect all kinds of knock-on political effects as people find other particular outlets for their general discontent and their general sense that, to put it crudely, the centre is screwing with them. So, that's, I mean, that, 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 that's a possibility. I mean, again, I, I, I raise it up. Um, the report comes up with a whole series of, of interesting cases of protests against the war. I won't go through them, except for one, I have to give full credit to Alexei Semyonov of Ishma, who apparently was under house arrest for leaving a rubbish bag daubed with the word zoo. Remember, Z and O are amongst the sort of letters that have been used as kind of military uh, recognition symbols, and particularly Z is now very much sort of a key element of the propaganda of the war. Anyway, daubing the word zoo in yellow and blue tape, incidentally the colours of Ukraine, by a military recruitment office in the town, and then posting photos of his stunt on social media. So, okay, credit. That's a little, a little bit more um, imaginative than most. 
The report continues to particularly look as a case study about prosecutions for online comments about the Crimea bridge blast. Again, I'm not really going to go into detail, except to pick up one element of that, talking about the degree to which, and here I have to actually have a little grumble, the famous old-school leftist is Boris Kagarlitsky, not Kargalitsky, as is repeatedly put here. But anyway, that, that's just a little grumble. But nonetheless, they do raise the fact that this, this man who, I mean, look, I, I remember reading his stuff back in, I think, in the, in the 1980s. Anyway, he's a sort of you know, long-term, famous left-wing publicist. And the interesting thing is that he is actually being charged and tried, not in Moscow, where he lives and where he published the, the comments that he was, he's been arrested for, but precisely in Siktivka, back in, in, in the Komi Republic. And what we see is, clearly in this respect, the Komi is being used, or regarded at least, by Moscow as a safe, isolated region in which to have a potentially politically controversial trial. So again, this is, this is part of how, in so many ways, the Russian government dumps its rubbish on the regions. Sometimes that is actually literal. There have been big protests about uh, landfills and so forth in different regions. In this case, it's a trial that you know, is, we pretty much know is going to be a travesty. But you want to get it out of Moscow. Of course, the interesting thing about Kagalitsky's case is precisely because of his profile, because of the respect for him, there has been this, this massive international campaign in support of him. There was a, again, the report talks about this, an international committee of solidarity and a whole series of prominent figures, generally more sort of on, on, on the left. So we have people like um, the French socialist Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the Slovenian public intellectual Slavoj Žižek, um, I, public intellectual, frankly, is an also another one of those terms that tends to have me um, curling my lip. But anyway, never mind that. And the, the, the Pussy Riot cover girl, Nadia Tolokonikova, you know, signing an open letter for Kagalitsky's release. And I think that's, that's interesting because the report really does want to stress the importance of not giving up, not assuming that once cases have been brought, that really there's nothing they can do. Yes, ultimately, the state can do whatever it wants. But there is always a cost-benefit analysis. There is always that sense of what are the risks in going for a sort of maximalist uh, route compared to anything else. So, you know, actually, just as civil society may seem useless in a system which is an essentially or you know, increasingly brutal authoritarianism, but nonetheless, it is still important to continue to widen and even internationalize particular cases where you feel you have some kind of, of leverage. The sad truth of the matter is that that tends to be, and we can look at the, the, the very sort of uh, valiant case being uh, pushed for Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal journalist. It has a tendency at the moment to be foreigners who get that kind of attention. Maybe that's something to be thinking about, that maybe there are more Russian cases that are worth getting attention. But if I'm already clambering on my soapbox, it's probably time I went and made myself a cup of tea, gave you a quick break, and then we shall return to looking at what's going on in the Komi Republic. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. 
And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So the report continues to talk about activists and researchers in the crosshairs and particularly the degree to which people have moved into social media as a slightly safer way of expressing their, their concerns and anxieties. But even there, they're being followed by the authorities, a particular local case, Nikita Tushkanov, who was added to a list of terrorists for comments about the explosion on the, on the Crimea Bridge. But the point is that they continue to do so. And although it says that in the Communist Republic the flow of information is entirely controlled by the authorities, that's very much what we're saying in terms of the, the official media. So social media does provide still this vital space. But what is interesting is a point that is made is that in this kind of fervid wartime propaganda environment, pro-government ideas begin to appear, quote, from the people, unquote, and quickly receive the backing of the authorities. Now, again, I think this is a really important point, which has been massively underrated so far. The degree to which, once you create a certain sense of national crusade, a sense that this is an existential struggle, even if a lot of people don't really believe it, some will get consumed by it and begin to essentially apply that to, to the world around them in the, in the way that they think best. In other words, they, they take the, the, uh, the ball from the government and run with it. As you can tell, I'm not really particularly au fait with sporting metaphors. But also, actually, people use it to their own ends. Again, the whole cause A, cause B. That actually, you may not really be interested in the war as such, but if you can use the, the rhetoric, the language, the whole cause celebre, to advance your own causes, well, all the better. And I think that we're already seeing that we already have seen that in the response to the now infamous Almost Naked Party in December, which, if you haven't been following this, um, it's, it's, it's a splendidly sort of prurient story, and one that I personally enjoy because it's one in which I, I have to have no... Well, I have no sympathy for anyone involved on any side, so I can just simply uh, observe it with, with entertainment. What there was was a sort of rather sort of debauched party of the sort of you know, socialites and uh, celebrities of Moscow with an almost naked dress code. So, I mean, you had, for example, the, the, the rapper Vazio, who sort of infamously turned up simply wearing a sock on, on his nether regions. And look, this was clearly intended to be a public event. There were journalists there. There, there was actually sort of film crews and so forth. But of course, what happened was when the, the footage went out, it created, on the one hand, a furious response from many within the state structure, parliamentarians, the church and the like, but also a genuine revulsion within society. There was this sense of, what the hell? We are you know, literally bleeding for the motherland in the special military operation. We are suffering the economic costs. And these socialites and such like are just enjoying themselves in a, in a particularly sort of obvious, over-the-top, decadent kind of way. So what's ha happened is actually that I don't think the authorities planned for the backlash to be anything like as severe it was. Because on the whole, look, the, 
the people who actually sort of run the system, they on the whole operate within the same social milieu as these Muscovite celebrities. So, you know, actually they were pushed, I think, by a genuine grassroots response. So fine, the, 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 the host of the event, the person who sort of started it, the, the sort of um, the, the model Nastya Ivlieva, very much now is sort of desperately trying to sort of claw back. Uh, there have been cases where, you know, Vazio, people saying Vazio should be sort of forced to go and volunteer for the front. The, in my mind, grotesque Philip Kirkorov, who I think really since about the 1400s seems to have been a sort of fixture of the kind of um, usual sort of glitzy TV sort of events, like, for example, the New Year's Eve party type thing. But even he I mean, was actually pulled from the, the, the main New Year's Eve um, TV event and such like. Um, you know, so, so generally, actually, th th this ended up becoming much a much bigger deal, one that is still reverberating, uh, you know, even to even now. But as I said, I think precisely because the authorities were taken off guard by the fact that once it became public, that they faced a real groundswell from below. It's all very well trying to use the language of mobilization, the language of war, the language of the need to suffer in the name of defending the motherland. But the point is what you create as a state, you will find reflected back from you, often in deeply inconvenient ways, by society. So I, I think that actually this, this point that in some ways what, what the state reaps, it finds itself uncomfortably sowing, is something that we really need to be tracking on more. And I'm reminded of the, the so-called dizzy with success moment, which is a point during the, the ghastly collectivization campaign that Stalin unleashed, which is in other words, really a, I would say a civil war of the cities against the countryside, forcing peasants into collective farms, essentially nationalising the farmland and you know, all, the, all the animals and the workers thereon. There is a point when the pitch becomes so destructive, so dangerous, that actually Stalin himself issues this letter saying, sort of dizzy with success, trying to almost separate himself from the process and imply that people were taking it too far. And in part, look, this was just simply a way for the state to, to regroup so that it could then resume the collectivization campaign with, with renewed vigor and violence. But it did also represent a, a concern that actually things had acquired a momentum all their own. And we would later see that also with, with the Great Terror. There is a degree to which once you start going down the road of denunciations and the like, that in fact it begins to sort of spin faster and further than you may have wanted. Of course, this is not Stalinism or anything like that. But generally speaking, the more you sort of build up these kind of, as I say, national crusades, then the more you may find that they actually acquire their own momentum. And the interesting thing is in this case, actually, you know, in, in the Komi Republic specifically, as the report brings out, actually, precisely, I think, because of the level of casualties, you have the head of the Republic, Vladimir Uyba, who publishes online obituaries of, of all the residents of the region who are killed. And obviously, it's to describe their sort of deaths as heroic. It's to cover his own back so that people don't say, you know, why are you not paying attention to the, the heroes of Comey and whatever. But the interesting thing is that at a time when Moscow is trying, still trying, to minimise attention paid to the sheer scale of casualties, 
you have you know a local official who is actually highlighting the scale of casualties because of the political pressures that he's facing there and then. Next, the report goes on to the whole issue of joining up as a way of avoiding prison um, and, and makes the, the note that in, in November 22, the Federal Prison Service announced a record drop in the number of prisoners, 23,000 in the space of just two months. Now, that does not mean that all of them ended up joining Wagner or, or the army at that time. But nonetheless, you know, it does give a sense of the fact that uh, if nothing else, the, the, the policy of recruiting prisoners, it may not do a huge amount for the war effort, but it does a lot for prison overcrowding. Too dark? Nah, maybe, maybe. Anyway, again, very widespread and interesting because we know that this happens, but actually the report is useful by providing a whole series of examples of these cases in the Komi Republic. And what particularly struck me is that you know we, we have a few cases of people who one could generally regard as, for example, you know, career criminals. One, for example, by the name of uh, Maxim Abubakarov, who decided to go and fight rather than actually uh, end up having to face the consequences of his actions. But in many cases, you know, what we're talking about are either, you know, really quite, quite petty offences, but increasingly also actually a case, cases in which it's officials who regard this as their kind of escape route, their literal get-out-of-jail-free card, but obviously a rather dangerous one. So you have the fact that, in fact, Yaroslav Shaposhnikov, the mayor of Orkuta, again, one of the main cities in the Komi Republic, who, along with five of his employees, signed up with the Ministry of Defence to, to go and fight, and it just so happens that that followed uh, you know, a terrible accident in Vorkutai in December of 2022, in which the local water supply was, was polluted and prosecutors opened criminal cases against these officials. And I think we're seeing this more generally. But this report provides us with interesting case studies of precisely the way that, in fact, the, the dynamics of the war has meant that in some ways you can cleanse your, your soul and your reputation by taking part in the special military operation. The interesting thing, and we haven't yet got the kind of data which allows us to be able to make any kind of broad judgments about it, is after it happens, you know, let's say that Shaposhnikov then comes home. You know, is, is he genuinely regarded by the state, if not necessarily by the population, as having paid his price? Can he still go back? That would be a crucial thing, and I think, unfortunately, we're going to find that the state will decide that he has. And just generally, the, these people have indeed sort of blanked the slate by, that, by their blood. Now, moving on, the report talks about, but of course there are other ways of demonstrating your you know, loyalty to the regime, but also looking after the boys at the front, and that is humanitarian aid. And the interesting thing is that the way that humanitarian aid as a term and as a concept has been broadened out to mean basically any kind of assistance provided to the soldiers at, at the front. And again, the report provides a whole variety of, of, of interesting cases about ways in which people are being encouraged and indeed induced or even forced to actually provide this kind of extracurricular assistance. And I think this is really, again, something that we, we really haven't paid enough attention to. What is in some ways a kind of informal taxation 
to support the war effort over and above whatever comes out of national budgets and the like. There's an interesting parallel again if one goes back to Soviet times, the so-called Subotnik, in which people would voluntarily, quote-unquote, give up their Saturdays to go and, I don't know, pick litter or do whatever else needed to be done. And again, you did so because of peer pressure, because you're expected to by your boss, because maybe you had ambitions for a career in the party or the Young Communist League, and that was a way of demonstrating your commitment. But whatever reasons, pressures were brought to bear to make people give up part of their precious weekend. Well, in this case, it's it's in sometimes it is in the form of, of labour, and sometimes it's in the form of money. So, you know, you, you've got all kinds of different uh, you know, posters trying to suggest that people, when they go to pharmacies, also pick up some medicines and drugs and things and drop them off so that they can be sent to the front. A rather sort of interesting take on the equivalent of the sort of Western Food Bank. You have online collections. You have attempts to basically, you know, induce people to, to feel that they have to do this by volunteer movements, like the so-called Volunteers of Victory and the movement of winners, which focus not just on adults, but on school-age kids. And again, the examples given in the report, including kids helping make candles that can be used in dugouts and camouflage netting, that kind of thing. So again, you know, this is the interesting thing that we're actually, we, we are genuinely seeing over and above the kind of rhetoric from the centre and over and above the one third of the federal budget that is going on the war effort, an attempt to connect Russians in. Because the point is, by, by these kind of voluntary activities, it's not just that you get money or drugs or camouflage netting or whatever for the front but also it's a way of trying to instill this sense of a a national struggle a national commitment that people are doing something for a, a cause that is greater than theirs because that is important in the context of civil society because we are talking about a struggle a struggle between those who wish to unite in however small a way to actually resist the, the, the pressures and the depredations of the government. The government, let's face it, does not care about them and is exploiting them to its own purposes. Once upon a time, it was just simply for mass embezzlement. Now it's also for imperialist war. And a state which to some degree is aware of this and is therefore trying to, in a way, fight that same mimetic battle, that, that, that struggle for people's hearts and minds, and instead bring people into that sense of they're all one nation fighting a war. And so, you know, all, the conclusions of, of, of the report, let me just read the first paragraph. Despite a high degree of apathy and a lack of trust, Russian civil society remains alive, even in remote regions with high poverty levels and no viable political alternative. Even indifferent people find opportunities to embed democratic practices, show solidarity and provide support for social initiatives. And I think that is absolutely true, that there is no direct correlation, in my opinion, therefore, between poverty and, and activism. Nor can we assume that hopelessness in on the sort of top level, knowing that you can't change the government and that, yes, these March elections are not going to be real elections, does not necessarily or not completely manifest itself as hopelessness at every level of society. People find alternatives. People find other ways. So this is not just simply a story about passivity 
which is again often the line you get and frankly the line as I say you tend to get sort of spun by the kind of metropolitan elite shall we say instead change can take place from within they use the example of soldiers mothers groups wielded significant influence during the war in Chechnya and the unhappiness of the wives of mobilized soldiers today is becoming more and more noticeable that's absolutely right and this is something that we're seeing on a whole variety of different levels and the interesting thing is that it does provide a serious policy challenge for the Kremlin it's one thing to go and send your Amon riot police into a, a, a crowd of you know, anti-government protesters or whatever. Are you really going to have them truncheon their way through a collection of mothers and grandmothers? Probably not. This is actually quite hard to repress. And I don't want to make it sound too cynical, but I think that's, that's part of the point. Exactly. Civil society will whether knowingly or unknowingly, find ways round, find ways to identify the weak points of the regime and see how it can use it. So, in conclusion, basically this report suggests three things, all of which, frankly, I would endorse and would like to just sort of build off. First of all, paying a close attention to Russia's regions, regional politics and social trends in the regions. It's so hard. Not least because, you know, it's, it's one thing to think, oh, I will look at the Komi Republic today. Let me be honest. Yes, I spent a certain amount of time digging into it before making this podcast. Does that mean I'm an expert in the Komi Republic? Of course not. Are there any experts in the, on, on the Komi Republic outside of Russia? Mm, it might be a bit tricky. And if you do happen to be an expert in the Komi Republic and you're listening to this, A, my deepest apologies. B, please do get in touch. But this is the thing, that, they, that there is a lack of opportunity, there's a lack of expertise, but most importantly, there is often a lack of interest. You know, I think this is it. We sort of maybe you sometimes, you know, when, when I'm, I don't know, briefing government people or the like, maybe there will be a question about the situation in the regions. But it, I, I can't help feeling that that's sort of tagged on at the end as a sort of, oh, yeah, and there is more to Russia, isn't there? What they really want to know is precisely, you know, who does Putin talk to? And, who, who, you know, is the uh, central government beginning to fall apart and the like? So, yes, let's look outside Moscow, outside St. Petersburg, outside the federal government. And, and look at regions. Secondly, continue to work with Russian civil society in the form of provision of advocacy and educational trips to Europe. Well, look, I mean, I'm not quite sure about educational trips to Europe these days. Hard to arrange, and I'm not really sure what that is. I mean, often, let's be honest, these kind of trips are actually more like kind of um, nice, nice little junkets, nice little holidays. And at a time like this, it actually would probably paint targets on the backs of civil society activists to say, oh, we'd like you to come to Brussels and be told about how the European Union is wonderful or whatever else. But nonetheless, working with Russian civil society is absolutely cr crucial, even if it's also incredibly difficult now. But in some ways, I would rather that we actually use some of the techniques that we used in the Cold War to reach out to Russians, to dissidents and the like, and encourage them. And that's all we can do. We can encourage, we can support. But nonetheless, I think that is important. And the final element, so it's a slightly longer one, focus on capacity building inside Russia by helping foster channel of channels of communication between new opinion makers and local NGOs, which have filled the void left by independent projects that closed down because of state pressure. There is the potential to develop new horizontal structures by cultivating ties between small, often non-public groups which are functioning despite the wartime pressure. 
Well, yes. I mean, one has to insert a little caution here. If it begins to look like the West is trying to stand up or choose between different NGOs, then that begins to look like covert attempts at regime change, which, let's be honest, A, is exactly what Putin thinks we're doing, and B, is also precisely what the regime is looking for, and frankly, is actually pretty well set up to be able to foil. Again, this is the danger. Every time we, we actually we, we support and uh, encourage individuals and groups, we do run the risk of putting them at risk. So I, I think we have to be very careful about this, but definitely anything we can do to encourage Russians themselves to organize and talk to each other. And look, maybe this is a very practical thing, like actually you know, providing free access to, to VPNs, which allow people to get past the, um, the government's attempts to sort of you know, block the internet and so forth. Maybe it is simply about just paying more attention to what's going on within civil society and publicizing it within the West, so that we know that Russians are resisting this regime. I mean, this is one of the often the, the points that's often made. Well, why aren't Russians protesting? Well, yeah, they're not out in the streets in hundreds of thousands because this is a brutal authoritarianism. But that doesn't mean to say that they are not angry and agitating. So it's important to, to publicize this within the West so that we have a better understanding of quite what's going on. But it's also very important to publicize it within Russia. And again, this is something that, that we did in the Cold War. I mean, originally, certainly RFERL, the um, American uh, service, yes, originally it was funded through the CIA, and frankly, it, it was, I think it's fair to say, more of a propaganda arm than anything else. But over time, they realized, just as the BBC had pretty much realized from the first, that actually the best propaganda in these circumstances is the truth. And instead, so both BBC World Service, Russian language and, and other uh, languages services, and I was going to say both, but certainly RFERL and to a degree Voice of America, you know, actually became pretty um, straightforward reporting services, which try to tell Russian people or Soviet people rather, what was actually going on in their own country. And as a, as, as a result, became indispensable. I mean, the number of times back when I was, you know, doing doing the f research of my PhD back in Soviet times, and obviously by that point we'd we'd had Glasnost, and there was so much more openness. But talking to people about how their lives had been in the late seventies and the early eighties, the number of times they would talk about almost the sort of the nightly ritual of gathering around the, the shortwave radio to listen to BBC World Service. I mean, it is really quite striking and and also, frankly, quite humbling. So you know, whatever we can do to encourage Russians to realize that they are not powerless and for those Russians who are acting or want to act to realize they are not alone is, is crucial. So this is, again, I think from my point of view, a little bit of a, a self-indulgence. I took what was a, it's, it's a short report, it's only what, ten and a half pages long. Um, I don't believe it is directly on the internet, but I will certainly put a link to the... Um, Association Dest website on in, in the program notes. And as I say, it's not that I actually have any connection with them. But I just thought the fact is that however short this report may be, and it's hard to know exactly sort of how far it really conveys the, the, the total picture of what's going on in the Komi Republic. But nonetheless, I think it is really important that, as I say, we, we look at the regions 
and we engage with the findings from those regions and we'll try and work out what is particularly just a local phenomenon and I do intend to talk about the protests in Bashkortostan in a future podcast and what actually is a way in which it gives us a, a better sense of what is really happening in the country than a wander through the shopping malls of Moscow to see which foreign goods are no longer available or a quick survey as to whether or not uh, young Muscovite hipsters are drinking as many cappuccinos as before. Yes, the metropolis matters, but that's no more all of Russia than a wander through the streets of London would give you a sense of everything you need to know about the United Kingdom. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.